0: Well, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for joining us online. We're grateful that you're connected with us today. Um, We're continuing on. Uh, We've been learning about unity and uh, the importance of of unity, the power of unity and how it uh, is what is going to cause the world to know and believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Uh, We found that out from John chapter 17 where Jesus prayed. The longest prayer in the scriptures of Jesus and how we pray that we would be one, one with the Father, one with one another so that the world would be assured they would come to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. But that, uh, that oneness, that unity requires love. And we've been learning about that love and, and how important it is. Um, you know, the Bible says love never fails. Uh, we're seeing in the world that we live in uh, sin rise up and uh, situations go on that we never expected, never dreamed of. But that's where in the midst of it, we can have great hope, great expectation in God because love, God who is love, never fails. And the Bible says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so we can have a confidence in in these times that God is going to provide the grace needed to be able to overcome in the midst of whatever we encounter to show the world what's possible when someone will trust in, believe in, and love the Lord God with all their heart. Amen. Uh, we, we are gonna take a quick look back at some scriptures that were foundation scriptures. This this uh, unity comes from love, first or chronicles or Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 in the New Living Translation says: above all these things, clothe yourself with love which binds us together in perfect harmony. So we're to put on this love. This is something that's an everyday outfit. I mean, I get sometimes caught up with wearing the same things and somebody said to me today, that's a really nice shirt. And I said, oh, that's good. Debbie would be proud that I was able to dress myself without her input today. Honey, I love you. I did good today. <laughs> but if I hadn't, it would have been all on me anyways. Uh, but anyways, clothe yourself with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. Another translation the NIV says perfect unity. There is a unity that God has because it, there is power in unity, um, and that love that that binds us together in perfect unity, perfect harmony, is what keeps us connected. That that overcomes the situations that would, in other uh, circumstances, divide us. And we found this out through 1 Peter chapter four verse eight, where it tells us, "Love covers a multitude of sins." Sin happens. You know, just because we're saved doesn't mean we don't sin. We can sin as well as before. We just don't have to. We've been freed, the Bible says, from the power of sin, from sin ruling our lives. But every time sin occurs in our lives, it was by choice. But when that happens, and and it can happen to any one of us, we get tripped up, we get fleshy, we get uh, upset or angry, and the Bible says be angry and sin not, but we act on that anger and we we sin towards one another. There are things that we do towards one another that injure us or irritate us or, or frustrate us when somebody does that to us. But we also do that to others. And when that happens, if we're not walking in love, it's going to escalate. If, if I get angry with somebody and they choose not to walk in love, they're going to be angry back at me. And we're going to go back and forth and continue to escalate until, you know, there's a no-win situation. But... When we walk in this love, and this love isn't the love of, I love ice cream, okay? It's an unconditional love that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That unconditional love of God that we're talking about is not based on what anybody else does. God chose to love the world and send his son no matter what the world was going to do. If nobody was going to acknowledge and repent and receive Jesus as Lord, he still would have sent his son. And that's where it's on us if we're going to love this way it doesn't take into account what anybody else does love always loves and so this love covers a multitude of sin and when it talks about that multitude of sin when somebody does something that's irritating or injurious to us we begin to cover it with this love and this love Covering sin is a lot like an oyster making a pearl out of an irritation or an injury. Something that's valuable, something that's beautiful, something that's priceless. And the things that happen in our lives, the injury, the irritation uh, that occur when people do things that God never intended them to do, but they choose to do it anyways, God can work that for good. Romans 8.28, God will work all things for for those who love him and are called according to his purpose when we love him we do what he says and so when we have that situation that happens if he's got to work it for good does it start out as good uh, come on i need your help no it doesn't start out as good if, if if it was good he wouldn't have to work it for good but it starts out as something other than good it's something that may be an injury it may be an irritation it may be uh, something that's a disappointment and god can work it for good as we love him and are called according to his purpose as we walk in this love we begin to surround this situation that didn't start out well we surround it with god we surround it with love we surround it with a characteristic of love and we found out what the characteristic of love is in colossians chapter 3 verse 12 and 13 We looked at this for a couple of weeks. And it says this, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with. And these are the the characteristics of love. It's very similar to what we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, And we're not going to go there today, but I would encourage you to read that, verse 4 through 8 and what the characteristic of love is. But this says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgave you now i want to i want to ask you to do something if you just close your eyes i'm going to read these characteristics off and i'm going to ask you to be really vulnerable before god be really transparent and be really honest and as i read these characteristics off just consider how prominent are these characteristics in your life Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. Now you can open your eyes. But I can tell you when when I did this on my own, I I realized that I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where God has for me to be. And so there is a work that, that I am to partner with God. This isn't something I can do by myself because this love doesn't originate in me. It doesn't originate in you. It doesn't originate in us as human beings. But the Bible says this love in Romans floods our heart by the Holy Spirit. God provides that love. But the question is, am I going to allow that love to lead and to to, uh, flow in my life or am I going to allow the flesh to rise up and, and do what I normally do or what I'm comfortable doing or what's familiar to me? And that's where this is a choice. We are going from glory to glory if we choose to change as God has for us to be transformed. But it's something we have to choose. It has to be intentional. So... These are the characteristics, and we find this in another scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, where it says in the New Living Translation, always be humble, gentle, and be patient. The same three characteristics that we just read. With each other, making allowances for each other's fault because of your love. Now, I could ask you, do you know any faults of anybody else? And we'd be quick to say, yeah, I know some faults in some people. But That's not what it's really talking about. It is talking about other people's faults. But many times we're able to see the faults in other people because they're actually working in us. The Bible says before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye, deal with the beam in your own eye. And that's where it's, it's a real helpful indication. If you're being bugged by what somebody else is doing, check it out in your own life and see if you're doing that too. And then deal with it in your own life. But we all have faults. We all do things that we wish we wouldn't do. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do, I I don't want to do. And God, I need your help by your spirit. And so there are faults that we perpetrate on others. And when that happens, the thing that we all want is somebody to be merciful with us. But the Bible says what we sow is what we we'll reap. So we need to remember as much as we see the faults in others, we want to treat them the way we want to be treated. Isn't that the gold, golden rule? Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And so we, we make that choice, but that's walking in love. When we walk in love, we're going to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We do it proactively. As a Christian, we're not to be reactive. We're supposed to be proactive. We're supposed to be responding to one and one alone, and that's God. God who is love. Uh, because if we don't, if we don't walk in this love, we're going to give ourselves over to something else. We can't serve two masters. The Bible says we're going to, we're going to love one and hate the other. And if we don't walk in love, we're told in Philippians chapter two, verse three, that this is what happens. It says, "Whatever you do, don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. Be humble and honor others more than yourselves." If we don't walk in love, selfishness and pride are going to guide our lives. And that's not gonna be a good thing. We've learned what pride does, what selfishness does. And uh, before we look at that, we're gonna pray. And so I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. You at home, bow your heads and you may say, well, why do I have to bow my head and close my eyes? Because right now, this this is a time where I'm gonna pray, but you can pray also. This is a time to just make a determination and intentionally turn your attention to God and say, God, I need to hear from you. I want to hear from you. And when I hear from you, I'm going to be changed by you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence. There's no place we can go that you're not there. But, Father, oftentimes we find ourselves not aware of you, not looking for you, not listening for you, not responding to you, but just kind of doing the best we know how to do in and of ourselves. But, Father, we're not alone in our life. You live in us by your spirit, the greater one. And you have designed and desired that we would walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That we would walk in your supernatural presence, provision, plan, and power. That, Father, people around us would see Christ in us who is the hope of glory. And so we thank you that as you, you speak to us today, there's a word for each one of us. And as we hear that word, we don't live by breath alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. That that word would be quickened to us, that we would hide that, your word in our heart, that we wouldn't stumble into sin and that we would be empowered to overcome. And we thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. So we've been looking at pride and and we looked at Obadiah, that book that you're always in and reading. uh, Chapter 1, verse 3, where it tells us the effects of pride. It says, the pride of your heart has what? Okay, we'll try that again. The pride of your heart has Deceived deceived you. Now what do we know about deception? Where there's deception, there's loss. But the other thing we know about deception is deception is deceptive. Right? You don't see it real readily. It just happens. And before we know it, we look back and we say, oh, man, you know what? I must have been deceived. But in the midst of it, we don't recognize it. And that's where we need to realize that whenever pride is rising up in us, that this deception is beginning to occur, we're not aware of it. And it is robbing from us the very things that God has for us and through us to the people around us to impact our lives and impart to our lives and impact and impart to other people's lives but it also tells us in proverbs chapter 21 verse 24 that this is how the perspective of a prideful person is it says proud people think they're better than others now i've shared with you there are certain areas that i get into situations that i struggle with one is the, the when i'm driving not like, not like the rest of you. The other one is the grocery store when I get in a line behind other people. And all of a sudden I struggle because I wonder why they're in my line, okay? Do you know what that is? That's pride. That's pride of me thinking that my time is more important than their time. That I ought to be ahead of them. And, and that's where without even realizing it, All of a sudden, I'm elevating myself instead of humbling myself. You know, it happens when I'm in the 15 items or less line. You know, I see a person in front of me with a full basket and think I'm much smarter than them. I can count. But that's pride. And that pride brings a place of deception in me where I'm overlooking the value of that human being. Now, what's the value of that human being? What is a human being worth to God? Jesus. That's the value of every human being. Every human being is made in the image of who? God. And God gave Jesus for every human being. And the moment I don't value that human being, no matter what the age, the education, the economic situation, the ethnic background. No matter what, if I don't value that person as equal to Jesus and see them made in the image of God, I am deceived. And I am being robbed, they're being robbed, God's being robbed of the glory that God deserves and the benefit everybody else deserves. But do we see that happening in our society these days? Yeah, people are devaluing each other for all sorts of reasons. And yet we need to recognize we're not better than anybody else. None of us are better than anybody else. God loves every one of us. No matter what we're doing, no matter what we've done, It doesn't change the love of God. And if God's love doesn't change, why should our love change for that person? These are things that we really need to be intentionally thinking about so that our actions line up with the way God has for us to live so that we can live this life that would be a witness to the world, that would be a benefit to the body of Christ, that would be a blessing to our family and our friends and all the people we come in contact with. And today we're going to look at at a portion of Scripture in the Old Testament. The Bible says the Old Testament is there for our benefit, for our our learning. And we're going to see the act of humility, how somebody walked in humility, life-giving love, and changed not only a person's life, but beginning to change a nation. And how others started out in humility and began to move into pride real quickly. How many of you know that, that you may be humble at one moment, but pride is right there looking to rise up and, and get us deceived? It happens before we know it. If we knew it was coming, we'd stop. But many times it happens before we realize it. We have an elevated estimation of ourselves and a deflated estimation of somebody else we think we're smarter, we're better, we're, we're, we're more deserving. And they're less deserving, not as smart. But that's where we've got to be very aware of how we choose to perceive other people. And the Bible says we're to honor other people. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to look at this. We're not going to get through it today. But we're going to look at a story, true story about a man named Naaman. And his name, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, Naaman's name means precious, it means beautiful, and it means radiant, okay? Now, he was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So setting the stage, Naaman is, man, he's a powerful man and yet there's something really unique about him because the king of Syria calls him great and honorable and that usually wasn't the case because the kings were usually very concerned very suspicious of the military leadership because it usually was them that brought coups that they would overthrow the king and yet there was there was such respect such honor that the king had for naaman it goes on to say uh, he was a mighty man of valor. So he had great accomplishments. He had great victories. He led massive amounts of people in the army to victory. But it says he was a what? A leper. A leper. Now, we, we know what leprosy is. It's a, a condition Back then, they didn't have the knowledge that we have today of the various kinds. Uh, but leprosy in those days was a death sentence. People who had leprosy, they knew they were going to die. Um, Bible scholars tell us that leprosy was, was uh, used as an indication for sin, all right. And... So we see that leprosy has some similarities to sin because the wages of sin is death. death. Leprosy brought death. There is also another similarity that leprosy many times would destroy the ability to sense, to feel. And, and that's what sin does it causes us not to feel things anymore. We, we get really hard hearted. Um, but he was a leper. And this story has some people in it. Some are not even named, but they are so important and they are such examples to us. It goes on to say in verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. So the Syrians were going into Israel. They were killing the Israelis. They were killing the Hebrews. They were abducting family members, bringing them back and making them slaves. And they had brought this one, and it doesn't even tell us her name, but I want you to know she's a great example to us. It says, a young girl from the land of Israel. Now, as I was studying this out, I was really drawn towards that that one word, young. And as I studied it out, and this is why it's so important to read Uh, and study the Bible, not just read the Bible. But that word young is a Hebrew word that means young or small. But listen to this, insignificant or unimportant. Now, to Naaman, to his wife, to other people, insignificant, unimportant. But God, she was very significant and very important. To his plan. I think we all struggle at times where we feel like, God, do you know I'm here? Am I really important? Is there really a plan for my life? Is it, is it, is it impactful to other people? And, and I want to tell you today that the truth is, You are seen by God all the time. You're noticed by God. You're valued by God. God has a plan for you that is far beyond anything you could ever imagine or dream. And yet when we look at this young girl, this insignificant, supposedly insignificant, unimportant person... We're going to see the impact that God had planned for her life. Now, did God have her abducted? No, the Syrians did that. But God still had a plan for her life. God will work all things out. How many things? For good. For those who love him. And that's the first first part of unity. We need to be united with God. Love him and are called according to his purpose. God has a part for you. And I, I want you to look at me and I want you to listen to me right now. You hear you at home. Your part is to be a world changer. And you may say, well, I, I'm just here in, in central New York. You know, I, I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything. This girl, she was ripped out of her family She was abducted. She's now enslaved. She's not doing anything but waiting on Naaman's wife. How much impact could she have? Naturally thinking, you know, her life is over. There's no big impact. But let's look at this life. It says she waited on Naaman's wife. Verse 3, then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Does that does that strike any of you as a little out of the ordinary? Cuz this unnamed, unknown, unimportant young girl was exceptional. Was extraordinary, just like you are. Because here she was had experienced what she had experienced. What do you expect from somebody who is kidnapped and enslaved? What do you expect their attitude, their perspectives to be? Man, upset, angry, want revenge, right? And here she is, and she sees the condition of Naaman. And her words out of her mouth to her master's wife is, if only. My master were with a prophet who is in Samaria, he would be healed. What's she thinking? She's thinking about where she came from. She knows who God is. The God of Israel is the God of healing. The God of Israel is the God of miracles. The God of Israel is the God of gods, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and now she's in a bad place, but you know what? She hasn't turned her back on God. How many times do we... Get tempted when things don't go the way we want or the way we think or the way that seems good. We want to say, well, God, you know, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. This little girl is still remembering the God of love, who is the God of Israel, the God of healing, and she's not turned her back on him, even when she could be tempted to think he turned his back on her, but he hadn't. She says, there's a prophet. She remembers what was going on, what has happened in the country she was abducted from, that there were prophets there. God did healings and miracles. I want you to know today, your God is a miracle-working God. Your God is a healing God, and he does not change. He is going to have his way. And so she, she says, this is what's going to happen. And she, she's operating in that life-giving love. Is she compassionate? Is she kind? Is she humble? Forgiving? And I don't know what your life has been like. But I can tell you my life has not been like her life. She's had it much harder, and yet she's maintained a connection with God, a faith in God, and a love for other people who have done her wrong. And we're going to see what impact this has. Because it goes on to say in verse 4, she speaks this to his to Naaman's wife, and his wife tells him. And Naaman's response is he went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus says the, the girl who is from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria says, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So in this moment, Naaman hears from his wife about what this slave girl says. And we don't know if he's desperate or humble, but he listens. He listens. Naaman's wife listens. She tells Naaman he listens. Naaman now shows a degree of humility, and he goes to his master. Who's that? The king. So there is a recognition of there are people above me. Folks, I want to tell you something. There are always people above us. Okay. We're all loved by God, but there are different roles we all have. And no role is greater than another, but there is honor to whom honors do. And so Naaman, in humility, honors and goes to his master and says, listen, this is what my wife told me that her slave told her, and... He's, she says, If I get to Samaria, I get to the prophet, I'll be healed. And the king says, Go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So, who has this unknown, unnamed, unimportant little girl impacted? Naaman's wife? Naaman, the commander of the armies of Syria? The king of Syria? But, but I, I you, we, we couldn't do that kind of thing. Yes, that can happen. And you may never know it. By your witness, by your uh, life of love for God and for others, your impact is farther reaching than you would ever imagine or dream. And you'll never know this side of heaven. And so the king says, take this letter. I'm going to send you with a letter to the king of Israel. And it says, so he departed. This is his name. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Now, we don't deal in shekels and and all that kind of stuff. But in in looking at this, I, I just want to clue you into what's going on. All right, so there's 10 talents of silver. That's 750 pounds of silver. So Naaman probably just put it in his front pocket, right? How do you think he got it there? Probably put it in some sort of cart or wagon, had horses or camels or something pulling it. 750 pounds of silver, it wasn't just one small cart. There were probably a number of carts, right, with a number of horses. Then 6,000 shekels of gold. 150 pounds of gold. Again, you're not going to put that in your back pocket. I got the silver in my front and the gold in my back. No, he's got to have a massive amount of transportation for that. Now listen, the 750 pounds of silver at $28 an ounce would be $300. And thirty-six thousand dollars. The hundred and fifty pounds of gold, four point eight million dollars. That's in just in today's, but what scholars say the equivalent of what that was back in that time to our time? Seven hundred and fifty million dollars. This is massive. Now It was well known that there were thieves on these roads. So Naaman wasn't a dummy. He wasn't going to just take all this wealth and not have an armed guard going with him. And I'm sure it wasn't just two guys. So in your mind's eyes, get an idea of what this looked like. Naaman, when Naaman was coming to Israel, to, to the king of Israel... The cloud of dust that was being kicked up by them on the horizon was massive. All right, now we're going to find out what happens. Uh, In verse six, it says this Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel. Again, Thinking about this, what's what's this whole entourage look like? It is massive. It's intimidating. These are people that had come into Israel on various occasions and, and killed Israelis, killed the Hebrews, killed the animals, had taken captive people, and now he shows up at the king with all this, and he doesn't know. He just sees this big group, and he hands him a letter, and the letter says, now be advised, When this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. How's that for a Monday morning letter? You get into the office and just expecting Monday to be Monday, and Monday's turned into this. You've got this massive group of people, you've got armed guards, you've got Naaman, the commander that has been in the country before, done tremendous damage, and he hands a letter to the king and says to the king, hey... Read this letter, this is from the king of Syria. And he opens it up and he reads, the king of Syria says, this is my servant. I'm sending him to you so you can heal him. And what's the king of Israel do? Not anything different than what we would do. Freak out. And it happened that when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and says, am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends me a man... to, to me to heal him of his leprosy therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me so the king of israel reads this he freaks out he has a meltdown he already determines why this is happening why does he say it's happening because The king of Syria, the king of Israel thinks the king of Syria is seeking to have an argument with them so that they can possibly go to war, right? Do you see that? Is that accurate? Is it accurate? No, no, we already know. There's no ulterior motive behind this, but he's already reading stuff into it. He thinks he's smarter. Then what's going on around him, he's already in pride and there's deception operating. His eyes are off God. But guess what? There are some people whose eyes are still focused on God. It goes on to say in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 8. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha hears about what's going on. He's heard about Naaman's come. He's heard about the fact that Naaman's given this letter. And he's not freaked out. Why isn't Elisha? Elisha freaked out. Whose focus is Elisha on? God. God. Because he knew that he was God's servant. Who else's focus was on God to get this ball rolling? The little unknown, unimportant, unnamed girl. Both of them had their eyes on God. They were, they were walking in connection and relationship, in unity with God, in trust with God, loving God, being available to God. And so he says... Send him to me. Now he's heard, I'm sure he's heard from the king what this whole thing looks like. And in the time of Naaman getting from the king to Elisha, what do you think Elisha's doing? Fishing? Yeah. I believe he's praying. I believe he's getting, he's going to God. He's humbling himself, going to God and saying, God, you're God. I'm your servant. What do you have for me to do? And then being obedient. All right. In verse 9, it tells us what goes on from here. It says this. And Naaman went with his horses and chariot, I think it's chariots. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So this massive amount of humanity that's with Naaman, all the wealth, all the horses, all the carts, all the everything, the armed guard come up to Elisha's house. Do you know what it doesn't say? Elisha's palace. It would be like this whole horde of people coming up to your house. Now, Naaman's got wealth beyond Imagination with him, whether it's 5.4 million or 750 million, he's looking at this guy's house. And guess what? He's not impressed. He's not impressed. And he's waiting. How many of you know prideful people don't like to wait? That's why I have a problem with lines why you have a problem with lines that's why we have a problem with lines elisha knew he was there and look at verse 10 elisha sent a messenger to him saying go wash in the jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean is that hard to understand rocket science Pretty succinct, easy to follow, just go do it. But look at the, the reaction, verse 11. Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, I will surely come, he will surely come out to me. Stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hands all over the place and heal the leprosy. Guess who Naaman's is like? Us. What do you mean us? Because he's already got the scenario written out. He's got the whole script, how it's going to happen. I'm going to get up there. He's going to see me. He's going to come out and acknowledge me. Then he's going to do this calling on the name of the Lord. He's going to wave his hands all over the place. You know, a little dramatics. A little drama for your mama. And and then he's going to heal the leprosy. Well, how's that like me? Because don't you and I tell God how he ought to do things? Don't we have scenarios in our minds of what we think God ought to do and how he ought to do it? And the moment we start to think we should tell God how to do it, how many of you know that's pride? The next time you think you need to inform God of how he ought to do it, when he ought to do it, through who he ought to do it, you're deceived because that's pride. God knows the best way, and it's easy to slip into that. And so Naaman Naaman is just livid. This pride has risen up. He expected to at least be greeted by the prophet. You know, that, that pride is so insidious. It is so sneaky. I shared in the first service, and I had not meant to share it and didn't want to share it, and now have to share it again. (laughs) That I was, I had gone to a pastor's meeting, pastor's conference, and, and before I went, I said, God, I really, I, I want to grow. I, I want to hear you. I want to know what you want from me. I, I, I need it real, plain, and clear. You know, I'm expecting these great things because I, I just am believing that way. And there's nothing wrong with believing for great things. God will do great things, but He all won't always do them the way you want Him to do it. And we got into the church, and I'm not going to mention it because I don't want anybody to feel bad, but got into the church and, and walked up, and, and I'm really, really, I've been praying in the spirit, and I'm just expecting God, and, and uh, I, I walk into the, the sanctuary area, and I'm noticing some of my other friends that are pastors are getting seated in the second row, in the third row, and I thought, oh, good, I'll be able to have a nice seat up in front. And uh, they looked at me and they said, uh, "You know, there's some seats back here." What? There are some seats back here, and all of a sudden, this pride rose up in me. Well, if they're seated up there, why should why can't I be seated up there? And I started to get really upset. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know what I'm talking about. When we don't get what we expect and what we think we deserve, and all of a sudden that pride is rising up and we don't even realize it. And I, oh, okay. Smile on my face. Looks good. Not good inside. Struggling with this pride. I should, if there, I, I go back and sit in the back and I'm like, God. they're up there. I deserve to be up there. And I I am aware of Holy Spirit. You want to hear from me, right? Yeah. I'm talking. Some things you need to deal with and this is it. This needs to die. Because whether you're up front or you're in back, guess who still sees you? Guess who can take care of you right where you are? And I remember this and I didn't share this in the first service. When my mom and dad really started to turn to track with God. My mom needed a healing. <clears throat> and my mom and dad were were real good examples for me in humility and love for God. My mom was told that, that this is incurable. You're going to have to live with it the rest of your life. And she said no. She heard about some meetings in the Capitol Theater. and She went in and she sat in the back row and she said, God, if you're going to heal me, you can heal me back here. Now, I say that, but don't, don't everybody migrate to the back rows, okay? It's really <laughs> nice to have some of you up front. Uh, but, but she believed that God would see her wherever she was and take care of her. And, and God did, but that's where I, I, I was struggling with insecurity, with pride, and God was telling me, this has to die. You have to crucify this. You know, the Bible says we're to crucify the flesh. We're supposed to do that. And the problem with crucifying the flesh is our flesh always wants to crawl off the cross and back on the throne. And there's only room for one on the throne, and that's Jesus. And he's already gone to the cross for us. Now it's our time to go to the cross and crucify our flesh that the love of God would begin to fill us, not selfishness or pride being our guide. And this is what has to happen in our lives. As Christians, if we're going to be positioned and prepared for the work that God has, we have to like... the. John the Baptist said, I have to decrease that he would increase. But when you humble yourself, the Bible says, under the mighty hand of God, in due season, he'll exalt you. God knows the perfect timing. God knows the perfect way. God has a perfect plan for you. And the only way you and I are going to walk in this and reach the world out there, they don't need to see more pride. They don't need more arrogant Christians. What they need to see is the love of God. People that love God, love each other, and love them on behalf of God. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. And it's not something for somebody else to do. It's something we, each one of us, chooses to do every day in every circumstance and situation. But it's possible because when we come to that place of recognizing who Jesus is, he's the son of God that died on the cross to pay the price for our sin and then repent of running and controlling, of governing our own life and turn that over to God and receive Jesus as Lord, he comes into our lives and begins to renovate to renew, to reconnect us with with the Father. And as we're reconnected with the Father, the love of God begins to flood our lives and then we we walk in love and cover the sin of our brothers and sisters and stay united the way God said we need to be for the world to recognize who Jesus is. And if you've never turned to Christ and trusted in Christ, I want to pray with you today. He doesn't, come in without your invitation. It's us inviting him in, us recognizing our need for him, and us receiving him, fully aware we're choosing to give our life to him who gave his life for us. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to pray today. And we're going to all pray together here. You at home, join us in this prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who came into this world, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, and died for my sins. Today, Lord Jesus, I repent. I turn my life over to You. I receive Your eternal life. Jesus, I proclaim you are Lord of my life. From this day forward, I am yours, you are mine. Guide me, govern me, guard me in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer here or you prayed it at home, let somebody know. Let somebody know. If you're here, let somebody know before you leave. You might say, well, I don't know anybody. I'm telling you, if you let somebody know, they're going to celebrate with you. If you're at home and you prayed this prayer, let us know. If you don't want us to contact you, just go down to, on the website to the prayer request. Let us know. Just put, I prayed today. If you want us to pray for you by name, give us your name. If you want us to contact you, give us some contact information. But understand this, that God has the most amazing future for every one of us. And the only way we're going to walk in it is to turn to him, trust in him, love him, and love other people. Amen. Would you stand? Hey, fathers, happy Father's Day. Hope you have a great day, but every day should be a great day. We have the privilege of being known as fathers, as dads. And it's very reflective on our heavenly father. He's the best father, the best dad. But we, we can follow him and do the best we know how to do. And he can make up the difference. Amen. I just want to pray for you here, you at home before we leave. Heavenly father, I thank you for your presence that lives big in your people. Thank you for the indwelling person of Holy Spirit who is greater than anything we can ever encounter in the world. Thank you, Father, that you go ahead of us and prepare the way. You are in our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday and our Thursday and our Friday and our Saturday and our Sunday. There's nothing that takes you by surprise and you have a provision for everything we can encounter. No obstacle. No opposition can stop us as we look to you, trust in you, obey you, and follow you. You have said we are overwhelmingly more than conquerors. And Father, whatever it is that your children are contending with, your word, your promises, you contend with those things that contend with them. You perfect those things that concern them. So, Father, we thank you for the victory today and every day as we look to you and walk with you each and every day in love with you, loving one another, and covering everything with your love. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, have a great week.